when we learn to tune into our bodies more attentively, what we're doing is we're tuning into the force of life. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me today. Super appreciated it. If you're driving in your car, then just kick back and enjoy listening, but don't lose your concentration on the road, of course. Um, there's a lot we're going to talk about, so if you're not sitting in the car, grab yourself a notebook and a pen. My guest today is awesome. And we're just going to have such an interesting conversation. You're going to want to listen closely. Before I get started and introduce you to Amanda Blake, our, our author slash uh, awesome human being that we're going to talk to today, let me remind you, if you haven't um, heard of it, then I don't know where you have been, but for most of you, it's a reminder that we're doing an incredible challenge this year to raise money and awareness for veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress, in particular, those who are have spiraled down and, um, and are suicidal. It really saddens me when I hear that 22 veterans a day, roughly, are committing suicide. It's, yeah, it's really painful to think about that because there are there's help, but they're not able to get the help that they need through the normal channels, which is like the VA system and whatnot. Now, there are a lot of good initiatives and folks like the Courage Foundation, we started, and others that are, are stepping up to help. And we wanted to raise awareness and money for this cause. So I challenged a team from our tribe, Seal Fit Unveil Mind, you who are listening to this, to help me do 22 million burpees this year. And at first I thought, holy cow, is that even doable? So I committed to 100,000. I just passed the 60,000 mark. And so I'm well on our way now. And uh, as a tribe, we've got almost, like we're very close to 10 million of those burpees already done and in the bank. And we've raised $170,000. Our goal is 250. So we're about halfway there. And interestingly enough, we're about halfway through the year. So Check it out at burpeesforvets.com. It's an initiative uh, for the world, for the vets, um, and can be done by anyone who's willing to challenge themselves. You don't have to do 100,000 burpees. You can literally just commit to 10,000. You could you know, jump on someone else's uh, campaign or, or team and just sponsor them if you want. So whatever you want to do. But um, they suffered for us, so we can suffer for them and help them get them you know, what they need. And oh, by the way, the money will be going directly to vets who are suffering, and we're going to put them through a three-day immersive experience, doing a lot of the training that we're going to talk about in this podcast, helping them find purpose, reconnect with a team, um, create new dialogues around their loss and their guilt and shame and whatnot, and to um, have a long-term aftercare, 18-month program with a qualified coach. And we know that that's model is going to be successful. The other thing I want to say is that I'm excited to finally launch a seal fit certification. So we're going to be launching the seal fit certified trainer program and then licensing facilities to offer seal fit as a program. We're going to kick it out first to those who had our, my aborted attempt two years ago to do this. So if anyone listening was at one of our basic training certs, then contact us info at SealFit, and we'll get you all the info you need, and then we'll roll it out to the broader community. So finally, letting go a little bit, kicking SealFit out of the nest, and going to help uh, let the community, engage the community to help us 
grow and to train more people. Our mission, both between SealFit and Unbeal Mind, is to train and inspire 100 million people in 25 years. So that's by 2045. So uh, this is one way we're going to do that. Awesome. Enough of the public service announcements. So I'm super excited, as I mentioned, to introduce to you Amanda Blake. When I saw her book come across my email inbox, I immediately purchased it. I said, this is a must read. It's so in line with what we do uh, at Unbeatable Mind. So she's just written a new book called Your Body is Your Brain, subtitled Leverage Your Somatic Intelligence to Find Purpose, Build Resilience, Deepen Relationship, and to Lead More Powerfully. And Amanda synthesizes research from a couple dozen scientific fields uh, into this book. And it's just really, really cool. Like, I couldn't put it down. She has a degree in human biology from Stanford. She's a master somatic coach. I founded a, an organization called Embright, which really does leadership development using these principles. And uh, what I love about her also, she's a yogi. She's a mountaineer, musician, and competed internationally in synchronized swimming. Ha! Awesome. Amanda. Welcome. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much. It's really good to be here. Yeah. So let me um, start out. You know, I'd like to, you know, this show is about people who have an unbeatable mind. They don't need to know anything about what I teach, but they have an unbeatable mind and they're displaying it. And so it's really interesting for me and for others to, to really think about how, how you got the way you got. Like, what was your early life like? Tell us about yourself and you know, well before you became a author slash, you know, thought leader, you know, like who is Amanda? Hmm. Hmm. You know, sometimes I talk about my path, to, you know, for all of us, I think our path to where we are today is just a full lifetime journey. Right. And uh, when I was a child, really small child, I remember my mom being pregnant with my brother. And there was this fascinating book that she had about childbirth. And I'm like three years old, and I started to get really interested in the human body and biology. And I grew up in a medical family mm -hmm. and just had a lot of support in, in that direction. I actually thought I was going to become a doctor. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, I was an athlete, as you mentioned. And so I was really interested in the human body from, from that angle. But that was never all of it for me. So also as a child, I would read these books about psychology. Some people of a certain vintage might remember a book called TA for Tots. It was transactional mm -hmm. analysis for kids. And they talked about warm fuzzies and cold pricklies. And all of that was just really interesting to me, like before I ever even reached the age of 10, right? And then I went off to college and I studied uh, in a really interesting program. It's a human biology program at Stanford. And they, uh, they really take the point of view that you can only understand human beings by looking through the lens of both the natural and the social sciences. Hmm. So I studied a lot of biology and a lot of psychology and how they intersect and interrelate. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of at the level of the individual, but I also studied the same thing at the level of community. So I looked at culture and nature or ecology and anthropology and how those intersect and affect one another. And um, that's a weird degree to graduate with. So I kind of <laughs> went out into the world and was like, what am I going to do with this? And it kind of took a long winding path to find home in my career, which really ultimately became the work that I 
do now, which draws on all of that that I that I learned in my academic education. So I had various stints in business and education, and all along the way was was mostly all about experiential learning and helping mm-hmm. people learn through experience, and ultimately wound up in executive coaching and then wound up in this very weird niche piece of executive coaching that applies mind-body science mm-hmm. to the development of leadership qualities. That's really interesting. Like when, when you were at Stanford, was the field of somatic coaching, it wasn't even a field yet, was it? Probably. No, cer- certainly not known. So, yeah. so the, the so, somatics comes out of psychology right. and really started back in, I don't want to say started because there are long traditions that are, you know, always fueling these things that we say, well, here's the start date. But, mm-hmm. you know, really even started back in the, the early 1900s and kind of in the 1930s, people started to really look at, well, there's this link between the, the body and psychology mm-hmm. and the way people behave in the world. But it was really confined to the area of psychology and health and healing and didn't really start to make its way into the world of leadership until, you know, very, very initial moves in kind of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Right. So no, really was not a field at that so point. Soma is movement, right? Or what is the root of the, the word somatic? Help us understand what we're talking about here. Sure. So a fellow named Thomas Hanna talks about somatics as a, a, a word that is used to describe a whole the whole human, right? Mm-hmm. So he's one of the founders of this movement of somatics in the United States. And he talks about somatics as being mind, body, spirit, and emotional, mm-hmm. you could say agility, health, um, high performance, mm-hmm. right? Somatics is the whole of, of the human. Mm-hmm. And the way that term is commonly used is as just about the physical body. Yes. Right. But his conception was, you know, it takes it it takes all of us, uh, our whole selves to to be effective in living in the world, whether we're in a leadership position or not. It takes all of us. And and um, I think he drew on the Greek tradition, Mm -hmm. which also had this view of a whole it takes a holistic view of humans Mm -hmm. to be a good citizen. Right. Yeah, logos, ethos, pathos, right? Yeah. Logic, yeah. emotion, and character. Right? What I love about this is like you're you have all this you had all this academic background to kind of like ground you, and then you explored it, explored these things through your own self, of course, mm, yeah. through athletics, through yoga, through breath work. And of course, with clients, where so many people, you know, really either have the academic or they have the the experience without grounding the academics. So I love that you're able to bring both. In fact, you know, I could almost say I'm in that latter category, even though I'm I've backtracked my way into the into trying to understand the academic and the research side. But my life has all been experiential learning. I mean, the seals uh, are the probably the most incredible experiential immersive somatic whole person development program I've ever seen in my life. You know, I've seen people come through training who were like really one dimensional and I'm thinking, man, this guy doesn't have, have it going on. And then 10 years later, they're geniuses and they're using their whole body mind system 
we have this thing, and uh, I'll just say this because everyone has heard me say this before, but our kind of approach, I call the five mountains, and we try to integrate the physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and what we call Kokoro, which is heart, mind, mm-hmm. intelligence is all, you know, to, to create an integrated whole approach to living, which is very <laughs> similar to what you just said in using completely different language, right? Yeah, it sounds very, yeah, very similar. And, and then, like you said before, that shows up in the domain of the self, domain of the self with others, which is our relationships, shows up in how you move your body, the health of your body and the actions you take, and then also in your stand in the world and what you're going to do about it as a leader. So I know you have a, a similar model, which is really cool, and we're going to get into that. But before I get into that, your four-quadrant model, I want to talk about different types of perception because this is fascinating and i think it's really important for people can we talk about the four different types of perception that the human beings have um, and i'm talking about perception you know exteroception proprioception and interoception yeah it's critical to start there i think in, in my opinion so people can understand these different ways that they perceive and show up in the world yeah, I mean, I really often start here because I think it's it's actually a little bit of a, a mind-bending concept for how we ordinarily going through our lives think about our ourselves and our bodies and what we're doing in the world. So we have these different classes of perception. And um, I often say, you know, we all have five senses. We know what those five senses are. We have organs of perception. Our eyes perceive uh, visual stimulus and, and light, our ears perceive sound waves. And that externally f- focused perception, the taking in of information from outside of the boundaries of our skin, the neuroscientists call exteroception mm-hmm. and biologists, not just neuroscientists. But we have these other classes of perception. And the other two that I think are really really relevant to what we're talking about today are interoception and proprioception. So interoception are the senses that we use to to sense our internal state. Mm. And similarly, like we have eyes and ears, we have organs that give us information that perceive internally and our heart and our gut and even our connective tissue around our muscles and our muscles themselves. All our organs of perception, we actually pick up uh, information about the world and our experience in life and our relationships with other people through these visceral senses. And we all know this from our own experience, right? Something, somebody says something that is hurtful or pisses you off and you have a visceral reaction to that. But most of us are not taught to, to skillfully understand and then make use of that information. Agree. We talk a lot yeah. about the heart mind and the belly mind, you know, and how the warrior traditions have cultivated these. Um, the Japanese have an art called haragai, which is cultivating your gut intelligence, you know, your belly mm-hmm. intelligence. And warriors know that you store energy in your belly, the lower dantian, they call it. But now I love how research is showing, guess what? We have like a half a billion neurons in our enteric nervous system in our gut. And same thing with a heart, right? And so the, the, they really are part of our brain system, our, our brain holistic system. They are all part of the what I call the distributed brain, right? That. And, That's great. and the, you know, the gut is 
some people may have heard like sometimes it's referred to as the second mm-hmm. the second brain. There's a brain. researcher out of UCLA who Emron Meyer who calls the the gut and ex- and the enteric nervous system an extension of the limbic mm-hmm. system. Our limbic system is our emotional uh, part of our brain. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty sim- simplified, oversimplified way of thinking about it, but you know, there, there actually is quite a lot of intelligence and emotional intelligence that lives in our enteric nervous system. And that part of our, our distributed brain is the only uh, part of our nervous system that can actually turn down messages from the brain in the head and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this other thing instead. Hmm. About 95% of our serotonin is in our gut. Serotonin Mm -hmm. is the, uh, the neurotransmitter that is affected by SSRIs like Prozac, right? right? It's a um, mood regulator. Well, it's, a mood, it's a mood regulator. And most of it is in our enteric nervous system, not actually in the brain in our head. Right. So, and, and there, and there, I mean, I could go on and on. There's yeah. similarly really interesting neurobiological tidbits about our connective tissue and, yeah, and information that we cool get from there. Because that's, that's oh, pretty just, new research, isn't it? That, that yeah, very new. has all this intelligence too. Yeah. Inter- like it's almost like your internal skin and your skin is such a big receptor of information. So why wouldn't it also happen on the inside of your... <laughs> on the other side, right? <laughs> it's true. You know, so one of the things, I'll just tell you one thing about fascia and then we can jump to proprioception, which you had asked about too. So it used to be thought that the eye, the retina, was the most densely innervated organ in the body. We picked up the most, for those of us who are sighted, we picked up the most information about the world through our eyes. But it's actually the fascia that is both the largest organ, used to be thought that the skin was the largest organ, our fascia, our connective tissue that surrounds every muscle, every organ, allows your body to move and stay in the shape that it's in. It has more nerves than any other organ system, and it's larger than any other organ system. And it tells us a ton about our internal state. Mm -hmm. And it plays a really big role in proprioception, which is that third uh, kind of class of perception. Yeah, this this one's awesome. So if anyone who's done any type of athletics or martial arts or movement, especially where you have to move in awkward planes and, you know, be around you know, circular and dynamic moving back and forth in all directions and up and down, you start to get a really good sense of proprioception, which I used to just call kinesthetic awareness, but it's much more than that, isn't it? Yeah. Relationship, awareness of your relationship to other things. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple, so a couple things. So like for listeners right now, for you, Mark, like where you're sitting without looking, you know, through your felt sense, where your right shoulder is in relation to your left knee. Mm-hmm. That's proprioception. Proprioception is your ability to balance. Um, proprioception is your ability to know where the position of your body in space. So we have external facing, internal facing, and then positional modes of perception. And you know something that's really interesting about our our body position is that if if we hold our posture in a particular way, or, or if we have a particular way of gesturing, that all communicates something about our emotions, our mood, like other people will perceive us in a certain way, depending on whether we're sitting up 
tall or slumped, for example. And that's like a really obvious example, but there's also sort of like, is your head cocked a certain way or are your arms folded or not folded? Some of this varies by culture, but what we also know is that these proprioceptive movement-based position in space sort of patterns are tied to emotions. So, you know, like a really upright posture tends to be tied to more positive emotions than a really slumped posture. And I always say like artists know this, actors know this, and this is actually part of our universal biological heritage. So while there are tweaks and differences, absolutely, by culture, there are also certain patterns that are recognizable across cultures that researchers have found, you know, consistently, you know, like folks who are blind will throw their arms overhead in victory stance, just like Mm. folks who are sighted will do. And it's partly because not just in humans, but across species, a larger, wider, more open posture is kind of both a a signal, an indicator of I'm, I'm good here. I have access to power and resources. I've done well. Mm-hmm. Those large open postures, it's true across many other mammals, not just humans. Yeah, that's fascinating. Hey, folks, Mark here. Listen up. I've got a secret weapon for you to make your working out and training more efficient and to get better results and faster. It's called the Halo Sport, and I love this tool. Simply put, training with a Halo Sport allows you to develop your muscle memory faster. The headset applies electrostimulation to your brain's motor cortex to induce a temporary state of hyperlearning. How cool is that? That means you're going to get better results faster from anything that you do where you need to learn by moving, such as your Silfit Wad, martial arts training, yoga, Tai Chi, or even running. Now, I interviewed Halo's CEO, Dr. Daniel Chow, a while back, and I was really impressed by his team and this underlying technology, the science of transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, which has over 15 years of scientific and military research behind it. I now personally use Halo Sport for many of my high-intensity wads and when I do my Tai Chi training where I'm trying to learn some new form. When I train my movements with the Halo Sport, I do learn faster and I get more precision and I feel I can perform more aggressively. Halo Sport's already being used extensively in the military special operations communities. And from my SEAL friends, I've heard that they get great results. It's also used by many pro athletes, Olympians, and thousands of lifelong athletes just like you and I. So in my mind, Halo Sport is the ideal training tool For those like you who want to exceed your training goals. To learn more about the Halo Sport, go to haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And you can use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND at checkout to get this awesome product for $475, which is $275 off of the retail price. Again, haloneuro.com. Use the code UNBEATABLEMIND. You won't be disappointed. This is a great tool. All right, let's get back to the show. Hoo-yah. I love this. So to me, one of the big ideas here is that, I'm not sure I'll be able to articulate it well, but 
that your body and the way you move, obviously, and you just said this affects the way you feel and the way you think, so your emotion and your cognition. And most people kind of get that. They're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, Tony Robbins has been teaching. You want to change your mind, change your emotions, change your emotions, change your state, right? What's your state? It's your felt sense of who you are. But most people don't really then think, well, I've got this pattern that I've been living for 20, 40, 50 years. And that pattern shows up in a lot of different ways. The way I greet people, the way I relate to people, how far I stand from people, my facial expression when I, you know, when something good happens, my facial expression when something bad happens, you know, and there's a million little nuances. And all of that essentially affects how you perceive reality. And so if you want to change your reality, start with your body. Right? Change your yeah. body. Change. That's fascinating. And it's very much in line with one of the things I've been trying to, to really penetrate and talk to people about. You know, they say you want to change, start breathing, and then start moving, and then it'll change. It'll start stirring up different thoughts, and then you'll start stirring up different emotions. And now you can direct all that toward a positive aim. And what you're saying is not only that, but you can actually develop greater care, greater choice, greater sense of purpose, greater presence, you know, greater collaborative, you know, capacity and courage. And you break it down with specific stories on how you can develop all those capacities just by moving your body in a new way or learning how your body moves. Sorry that went so long. I was trying to understand it myself, just talking it through. (laughs) No, it's great. It's great. And I mean, it's why I get excited about this stuff. So I, you know, I want to be clear, like, I don't, I don't claim that this is uh, that that sort of working through the body is the only way that one yes. can change. But what I think it's is cool, it's yeah. one of the avenues. And what I think is really cool about it is it's very actionable and operational, right? Mm-hmm. So if you go, well, you know, just just change your frame of reference on this, change your mind about a certain situation. That can sometimes be hard to do and the mind flits around and sometimes it's hard to sort of catch your thoughts while they're happening. But when you actually have something physical you can do, like I'm going to pay attention to the level of tension in my shoulders and my neck. And whenever that starts to rise, I'm just going to soften down the back of my spine. And I'm going to do that while I'm in conversation with everybody I come in contact with with, including and especially my boss or my direct report who kind of needles me or, you know, my spouse, when we have that argument that we always have about taking out the trash or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So you have something very actionable that you can, you can do, you can go, oh, I noticed that always in those situations, I tighten my eyes or I clench my fists or my feet grip the floor. And what I'm going to do is really pay attention to those physical cues, and then start to shift them. And it'll start in the same way that sitting up straight can actually start to change your breathing, get more oxygen to your brain, help you think more clearly and, and change your mood, you know, uh, uh, sort of, opening your fingers or relaxing your feet or, you know, changing your stance can all have, even in really subtle ways, can all have big impact on your mood, which Mm -hmm. then impacts what you do, right? The actions you go take, which then impacts the outcomes that you get. That's amazing. I love the story uh, that you tell about the work you did with the woman who ran the, I think it was the Women's Fund or Global Women's Fund. And yeah. How, you know, just terrified she was to to speak in front of all these celebrities and influential people. And and she had, 
you know, she literally just changed her stance. Instead of leaning back, she leaned into it and raised her chin and, you know, did some breathing exercises and just, you know, these very subtle shifts in her, how she used her biophysiology made her much more confident and courageous, you know, on stage. And then that, that led to a virtuous cycle of positive feedback, which then fed back into her, her work and it transformed her. Tell us yeah. a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, so she, um, so this wasn't a client of mine. This was a client of a colleague of mine. And I spoke to her about her experience and, and her name is Nicole. And what she told me was that, you know, when she was starting out as CEO of the women's fund in uh, Columbus, Ohio, she was quite young in her early thirties and she was under an enormous long uh, amount of pressure and she had just given birth to her second child. And you know, a lot of women struggle to lose weight after a pregnancy. She was under so much pressure. Uh, she just lost weight, like well below her, her pre-pregnancy weight within just a few months. And um, she, her job was incredibly stressful and she wasn't handling the stress that well. And interesting, she, one of the things that she said to me, I don't even remember if I wrote about this in the book, but one of the things that she said to me was she said, I felt like my true self was being eaten away from the inside. Mm. Now she did not realize or make the connection to that language. She felt like she was being eaten away from the inside and the fact that she was losing all this weight. Right. But actually, but this is actually how it works. Like it shows up in our language in ways that we don't expect. It shows up in our behavior. So part of what she did is she, she was working with a friend of mine, a colleague of mine named Suzanne Roberts. And I would say there are two main things that they did. One is that Nicole learned how to change her stance and change her posture Mm -hmm. in a way where the best way I can put this is she had a felt sense of her own care and she could stand in that really confidently mm-hmm. so she came as you described like she came a little bit forward and she was more solidly planted over her hips mm-hmm. and she felt in her heart the real care that she had for women and children in their community and how much she wanted to help and make a difference there and then the other thing that they did together Suzanne's trained in a particular form of body work that um, opens up stuck places. So we all have a certain range in which we can change our posture or change the tilt of our head or whatever. But then we also have, because we've had these repeated patterns throughout our lives, places in our bodies that are just held and stuck. Mm-hmm. And that limits our range, right? It limits the range to which you can get yourself over your he- hips or straighten your spine or drop your chin because you're all your musculature and your fascia and your, you know, sort of all those neural connections are holding you in a particular structure. So she changed both her posture and her structure and tied that to what she really cared about. And the result was she went from being an effective, but really kind of fearful leader to a leader that could stride out on stage in front of thousands, an audience of thousands of people and be up there with Vanessa Williams and Whoopi Goldberg and you know, other celebrities who would come in support of this cause. And, and she could lead that event, both feeling confident inside herself and being perceived as having a very powerful leadership presence. And as a result of that, you know, the work that she did was able to have some really amazing impacts in that community. That's a great story. What I love, what I heard is that if you want to 
if you can change your range of motion, then you'll change your range of emotions, right? And Beautiful. Can, I love that. Right. And then you can change, you know, transform. But yeah. you got to identify what those gaps are, what the stuckness is. And you use this term, and I love this, and I know probably a common in the somatic world, but that term of armoring up and how we armor up over a course of our lives through, you know, family patterns, through, you know, our societal patterns, through whatever, our, our own genetic patterns. And then this armoring up leads to us having, you know, a, a, a type set of physicality, I would say, or kinesthetic awareness or proprioception, perception, and interoception. And that these have like archetypal patterns. Tell me about the most common kind of archetypal patterns that we have and, you know, that, that dominate someone's. And, and you know, I, I've done a little bit of work with the Enneagram and understand archetypes from a leadership perspective, but I really thought about it this way, that your body's mobility patterns and, you know, physiological patterns are you know, either one of the causes or are resultant, you know, resulting factor of those. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So, we're, we're so trained in Western culture to think linear cause and effect. And I actually, I talk a lot about how it's, I think it's much more useful to think about body and behavior, body, emotion, and mind to think about these things more like playing a chord on the piano and, or on any instrument, right? Where, where there are certain notes and you can pull out certain notes and you can go, here's what my body's doing and here's what I'm doing in my behavior. And, but actually all of that in our experience happens all at once. And rather than thinking about it as cause and effect, you know, thinking about it more as this is a whole that we sometimes for, in order to better understand it, sort of take apart into its component parts to better mm -hmm. understand it. But actually right. in our experience, we hear the whole chord and so what happens with, with these archetypes is there are these movement patterns. They were first discovered back in the 1930s by some women who were doing physiological studies of dancers. And then later in the 70s, a woman named Betsy Wetzig, um, a dance instructor, kind of took up these archetypes. She read something about these four different movement patterns that we all have access to, but from birth, based on this early research in the sort of 1930s or so, from birth, we we actually tend to have a preferred pattern. And hmm. what Betsy did is, is she started to notice these patterns in her dancers based on the different kinds of dance that they did. So like um, ballet dancers would always come into the studio very well put together and, the, and their bags were organized and they were on time and they would set their bags to the side and they would, there was a lot of precision in their behavior right? Mm -hmm. And whereas the modern dancers, the jazz dancers who have a little bit, well, especially the modern dancers who have a little bit um, less or different kind of precision would come in with their, you know, bags a little bit in disarray or their hair in disarray, or maybe a few mm -hmm. minutes late and their behavior matched the kind of dance that they gravitated to. And she took this kind of to, to some pretty interesting ends to the point where she, she really learned about this deeply enough that she was able to, and she would do this in, in New York Soho parties in the 1970s where she would go into a room and see a painting by a painter that was known in her artist community, but that she didn't know who had painted this, this particular piece. And then she would start to move like the painter based on their painting. And she would almost always nail it. 
because our our bodies, our brains, our behavior, our, we we play that experience like a chord. So much later, fast forward, you know, to the 1990s, early 2000s, Betsy, the, the dance instructor, hooks up with a woman named Ginny Whitelaw, a colleague of mine who was interested in leadership development. She had a long history in Aikido, the martial art Aikido. Mm-hmm. And and um, they together started looking at these four movement patterns and how they might apply to leadership behaviors. And so they've named these movement patterns driver, organizer, collaborator, and visionary. And what happens is we each have access to each of these movement patterns, right? Given sort of a healthy body and brain, we each have access, but we tend to have this home pattern. So if your home pattern is driver, which it tends to be a forceful, forward-leaning, kind of like a, a a uh, triangle moving forward, right? There's a lot of energy moving forward. If that is your, and there's an intensity to it, right? And sort of a fierceness to right. it. If that is your home pattern, when it comes time to sit back with your team and imagine what the future is going to be like for the next one, two, three, five years, you know, you were talking about setting some goals, these 22 million burpees. I don't remember if I have that number right. Um, yeah, that was right. Right. So, right. so you know, when you when it's time to kind of envision what the future is going to be, that's actually that experience is more of like lean back, let your eyes go up to the horizon, open your senses, open your um, open yourself much more uh, widely to a sense of possibility, which is really different from a, a movement pattern that is driving forward for results. Both are needed, so are, right? Are they teaching? Yeah, no kidding. So you can take this into a leadership setting and teach uh, an executive team how to access all of these at the right time through how they manage their body. Exactly. Movements. It's like, exactly. So it's like, what are we doing right now? What is this meeting about? Um, are we planning how we're going to work together and exchange tasks? Well, let's get into a little mm-hmm. of a collaborator energy, which is more of a swinging rhythm. And you can imagine a, like a, a bucket brigade dance. that's working with, dance or a dance or, yeah. <laughs> that is really well-coordinated dance or drumming uh, together, see. right? There's a rhythm together to that collaborator movement pattern. And so these movement patterns actually intersect with the way that we behave in the world. And when we learn what they are and learn how to shift from one to another, we can go, what's the activity in front of me? And how do I need to shift my body? What options do I have available to kind of get into the energy that I need to be successful? That is awesome. I love that. Now, I know you appreciate some soreness brought on by getting busy with a bruising workout, but doesn't it suck when excessive soreness throws us off our game? causing us to back down on our effort, or even erasing those hard-won gains? That is why building recovery into our training plan is so important. Now, one way that I do that is with a simple-to-use recovery and healing tool called PowerDot. PowerDot is an electrical muscle stimulation device that forces type 2 muscle contractions, allowing you to increase muscle performance, speed up recovery, and also find a deeper mind-body connection. I've used complicated stim devices in the past to heal from my back injuries, but those were clumsy devices and not very effective to use for everyday use. 
The PowerDot, however, is a game changer because of its simplicity and the control through a well-designed mobile app. It's portable and powerful, making it usable for daily recovery or as needed for excessive soreness and to ward off potential overtraining injuries. PowerDot puts professional-level physical therapy into your gritty hands, saving valuable time and money. Now, the PowerDot team loves us at SealFit and Unbeatable Mind, and they have a generous offer for us. You can get 25% off the device when you go to PowerDot.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-D-O-T.com. And use the code UNBEATABLEMIND, all one word, UNBEATABLEMIND, at the checkout. So again, receive 25% off of one of my favorite tools for achieving increased muscle performance and recovery by going to PowerDot.com and using that code UNBEATABLEMIND. Hoo-yah kind of wrapping this all together in you know into your very cool model of um you know self awareness self action um relationship with others and and then relationship with the world you talk about four like somatic competencies sensing centering presencing and galvanizing mm -hmm. can we um dig into that a little bit and talk about why that's important and and how a leader could use or a listener could you know, kind of use some of the knowledge here to get more, develop more capacity in those four areas? Yeah, yeah. So um, the first thing I'll say from a leadership perspective specifically is that there's now decades and decades of research demonstrating that emotional and social intelligence, the ability to be mm -hmm. aware of one's own emotions and the emotions of others and how those might affect outcomes that, that a high emotional and social intelligence is what separates outstanding leaders from average leaders. Consistently, it is a predictive force. If you're high in that, you are going to um, have employees that stick around longer. You are going to have a more positive climate on your team. And there are all kinds of metrics mm -hmm. that have been measured. So what I did is I broke down, okay, Emotional intelligence isn't is um, awareness of your own emotions and and also the ability to regulate your own emotions. So there are several. There's like a dozen different competencies at least in in these uh, four quadrants. But I really tried to break it down to the sort of the central nugget. So um, it, what what isn't very much discussed yet in the literature, but what I hope to um, contribute to over time is that these capacities for emotional, like it's really easy to say, well, you should be more aware of your emotions or you should be able to regulate your emotions more, but actually how do you do that? It's, it's hard, right? Easier said than done. Um, so, um, be, there are somatic competencies that underlie these capacities. So if we just talk right now about emotional intelligence, there's kind of the awareness aspect and the action aspect. When we become aware of your, your emotions more, one of the things that you, you can do is to sense more. And that's what I call this first somatic competency, sensing. And, mm -hmm. and that is using your interoceptive and proprioceptive sense, like sensing your body in space and your visceral sensations, opening your range of motion so that you can actually sense mm -hmm. more of that, de-armoring so that you can sense more of that. That'll tell you more about what your emotional right. state is. And centering is the capacity to regulate your emotions. And very often, you know, I, I often say, we know 
beyond any shadow of a doubt, we know from our own experience, we know from all of the neurobiological research, stress is a physiological thing, right? Mm -hmm. If that's true, then resilience must also be a physiological capacity, right? Because what you're doing Mm -hmm. is you're counteracting the physiology of stress. But most of the time when we're stressed out, we try to talk ourselves out of it. And sometimes that works, but often it has a limited effectiveness. So if you can learn ways to center yourself, and lots of people will go to a yoga class or a Tai Chi class, all of that's great. Um, and continue doing that. If that's something you do, listeners, mm-hmm. please continue. But what I think is really most useful for, for us in the world, not as an alternative, but as an addition to those kinds of practices, is learning how to center ourselves on the fly. Right? Mm-hmm. How do you shift your body while you're in conversation with someone? How do you soften your eyes or drop your shoulders? And what is the signature move for you that's actually going to help you get centered while you're in conversation with someone else? Nice. So that's sensing and centering. And both of those somatic competencies really support emotional intelligence. And then the other two, presencing and galvanizing, are the somatic competencies that support social intelligence. So I talk about um, presence as the capacity to have your attention on yourself and another at the same time so that you're not, you're not getting lost by sort of overly attending to what someone else needs, but neither are you ignoring the other person or group of people that you might be working with. And that's actually a pretty high order thing to do with your attention. And it takes a lot of practice to be able to feel your own sensations, be aware of your own emotions, and still be in conversation and relationship with someone else in a way that they feel felt. But what's interesting uh, is that we're really, we're biologically equipped for that. So Mm -hmm. the the, um, anatomy that we use to sense ourselves in our entire distributed brain is the same anatomy that we use to experience empathy with another. And there's all kinds of technical details about that in the book, but I don't want to, you know, bore people with a bunch of technical details on the podcast, but it, it is the, we, it's the same anatomy. The more we can feel ourselves, the more we actually can empathize with another. And that, that deepens our presence and our capacity to connect with others. Do you think that's because we're actually feeling others or we're just feeling ourselves in a more refined capacity and our, our emotional reactions to how other people are receiving us? Uh, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> how philosophical do you want to get? Because, right. you know, then I go like, what's self and what's other? Right. Are we, how separate are we really? So our bodies, our, our neurobiology is an open system. And what that means is that we, we are changed. We take in information from outside our own skin and we are changed by it. And mm-hmm. um, there are lots and lots of ways that that happens. In situations of rapport, people's brain waves, blink uh, rate, heart rate, breathing rate will sync up. Yeah, resonation. There's this process of resonance or synchrony, and it is a, in the research literature, a known component of what creates rapport between people or what is a result of rapport. Sort of back to that chicken and egg, it gets played like a chord, right? So Mm -hmm. our our bodies affect each other through space, just through sort of the atmosphere and the um, emotions that we're, we're experiencing and then 
uh, emanating. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So what about galvanizing? Galvanizing is um, really about showing up in the world, right? And, and being a leader from a grounded, centered self, being present and knowing clearly who you are and why you're doing things. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes to all of that. You know, I say that the more you sense, the, the clearer you get about your purpose. The more you center, the more resilient you get. The, the more present you are, the more empathetic and connected you are. Right. And all of those add up to a capacity to galvanize others. Now, it takes other skills as well, right? You need to be able to communicate really clearly. You need to be able to resolve conflict. You need to be able to inspire and invite people into a vision. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's really interesting is we all have places where it's uncomfortable for us to speak up. Mm -hmm. Right. So I once worked with a group of men. I write about this in, in the book, um, a group of men who do inspections and um, mechanical repairs at height. They work on wind turbines and bridges and dams. Oh, these are the rope workers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're a bunch of climbers and they go out and they, they, my kind of people. Oh, it's, cool. it's awesome work that they do, you know, and they go and they, they take care of America's infrastructure. Right. And actually, they've started doing this internationally now, too. And when I worked with them, we had them do an exercise. What we were actually doing for the company was helping them get better at delivering assessments, delivering feedback, essentially, mm -hmm. because they were really, really such a nice and wonderful, fun company, but they couldn't tell each other the hard truths. Mm -hmm. And that limited where they could go together and they were like we need to learn how to do this better well what that's pretty common with most companies by the way yes <laughs> yes it really is and um what what was interesting is in our work together we were doing an exercise where people were sitting close together and there was sort of you know that kind of feedback can actually be quite intimate mm -hmm. right, right. At not in a romantic way, obviously, but in a way where it's like, well, you're really, uh, your words really touch someone where it counts. Like, mm -hmm. am I respected? Do, do I belong here? Mm -hmm. Am I safe? Am I, is, can I keep my job? Right. So, so delivering feedback inside of an organization can be really tough because it can sort of throw up all of our alarm systems. So we're working with this company and, and this group of guys and, and one, uh, in this one exercise where we were kind of having people say something true to each other while standing pretty close to each other, mm -hmm. one guy said, oh, my God, this invading is space. this is a little bit invading their space, right? And, right? and this guy said, oh, this is how I feel when I'm in a hard conversation or like an intimate conversation with my wife in the room, which was mm -hmm. mostly men, like 98% mm -hmm. men just busted up in laughter and all said, you know, I really recognize that. Um, so my point is that we all have places where – it's hard for us to say the thing, right? Mm -hmm. And in order to galvanize people, you have to say the thing. In other instances, other people that I've worked with, it's been like, I really have this vision, but I'm afraid to tell people about it because mm -hmm. maybe I'll get ridiculed or maybe I'm not up to the task, right? Mm -hmm. So there are places where what we need to say is, is vulnerable and um, challenging. And what, what we can do is learn to quiet all of the um, internal visceral intensity 
that goes along with saying the thing and be able to stand up and say it from a place of care and confidence. So we can sort of circle back to Nicole, who we were talking about earlier, the woman who was so stressed out at her job, but later was, you know, really learned how to move in such a way that she could galvanize a room full of thousands of people to take action. So I love that. So essentially what you're saying is the leaders can learn to de-armor to be more vulnerable and authentic. And that way they're going to show up as stronger, not weaker. Yeah. And more collaborative, more caring, more concerned. And what I love, I'll, I'll borrow from, from Wilbur, also more world-centric in their care and concern, right? Which is a big push for us. Is like get people out of their little tribal viewpoints, whether that's a corporate tribe or us versus the competition. But like, hey, we're all in this together. Yeah. Going back to what you said. We're not that, we're not separate from everybody else. We have this separate sense of self and our uniqueness, but ultimately we're all made of the same stuff. We got the same spirit flowing through all of us and including, you know, uh, mother earth and, you know, my little pet puggle who's laying down next to me. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a beautiful vision for the world. And I think your work and this book is really going to help people kind of understand, you know, the integration of body, mind, emotions, and action. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to comment on the one thing that you just said, because this is my, my deep belief, is that when we learn to tune into our bodies more attentively, what we're doing is we're tuning into the force of life that moves through every living, every living thing. We're learning to pay attention to the force of life. And if we can learn to move, to take action, to behave in cooperation, in concert with the force of life, then we start to take action that is uh, based in a more care and more world-centric concern. And that's my big hope for the world and my big hope for how this book can impact people. You just summarized the whole spiritual belief of Taoism in that statement. (laughs) (laughs) Now everyone's going to be like, what's that? I got to go research that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing. All right. Awesome. 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 I could talk about this forever with you, but um, we've been going on for a while, so we're going to kind of close it up here. But where can people, obviously your book came out. um, it, It can be found on Amazon. Do you want people to get it at your at your website like I did, because you got, you sent me some nice uh, audio practices on how to sense and deepen my, you know, find my center and that kind of stuff. So what, what's your website? Uh, let's just say, go to your website, go to Amanda's website to get this book. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, you can, the website will direct you to your favorite bookseller, but where you can go is mbright.org. So that's E-M-B-R-I-G-H-T, mbright.org forward slash book. Um, and there you can, uh, find some of those special goodies that I sent to you, Mark. And, mm-hmm. um, those m- probably won't be available for all time, but at the time of this recording, um, at least for the next month or so, those are, those are up and we'll, we'll always have something that people can, there's tons of free resources on the website. So f- please feel free to poke around, avail yourself of what's there. It's a really rich path of learning. It's it's. And do you have uh, any seminars or workshops that you lead, or is that something you're considering? 
Yeah, yeah. So for people who are, I say, human development practitioners, so coaches, therapists, yoga teachers, we have educators, uh, equine guided therapists, come through a class of mine called Body Equals Brain, which is specifically for practitioners. It's a little, anyone is welcome, but it is probably a little in-depth for just folks who want to learn how to apply this in their leadership life. So for practitioners, I would direct them to the to that course, which is on the Embright uh, website as well. And then I do actually have planned another program that is directed for leaders. Currently, my work with leaders is all inside of organizations and by invitation, but I'm getting more and more requests for, you know, can you do like a public program? So I do have something like that on on the radar that we're planning to launch within the next year. So I would say if that's of interest, you know, hop on the hop on the mailing list and stick around. We'll let you know when it's ready. Got it. And you do one-on-one coaching. Do you have time for that type of work? I do do one-on-one coaching with select individuals, but my time for that type of work is uh, becoming more and more scarce. I love doing it though. And, you know, it's, it's available. So reach out and, you know, we usually make people go through a little bit of an application process and make sure that we're a good fit before I'll take someone on. Awesome. Yeah. Amanda, thanks so much. Great work with the book. Uh, thanks for doing what you're doing. I know you're just getting warmed up and uh, I hope to meet you in person sometime and and uh, do some movement together. I would love that, Mark. This has been a lovely conversation. Thank you so much. And thank you for the invitation. It's been great being here with you. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. So hoo-yah. Hoo-yah. All right, folks, what an amazing conversation. Uh, Highly, highly recommend you check out Amanda's book, Your Body Is Your Brain at mbright.org, E-M-B-R-I-G-H-T. Fascinating stuff and really important. I, you know, it's right in line with Unbeatable Mind and Seal Fit and what we're trying to teach people um, with a lot of nice nuance and a lot of, uh, you know, validation from both uh, experiences with other students and teachers as well as scientific community. It's really important stuff. If we want to operate at our 20x potential, then we have to be able to tap into the full wisdom intelligence of our body-mind system. And we just learned uh, how to do that. So thanks for listening. And as usual, I'm honored that you're uh, participating in this podcasting journey, which started out kind of as a fluke. Hey, everyone else is doing it. Why don't we do it? But now it's actually turned into something quite enjoyable. And I get to meet people like Amanda and all these cool guests and have a a conversation with you. So it's pretty cool. And I'm really stoked that you're you're interested in the things that we're talking about here because it's important stuff. All right. Enough said on that. Train hard, stay focused, and be unbeatable. Hoo-yah, divine out. Lock it low, boys. Time to explode, boys. Make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the U.T.T. Oh.